Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 16th of May, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Call News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And also welcome to David Scott from Northern Exposure and Katie Jo Murphan as well. So uh, let's get straight on with this. Uh, Boris is uh, in Northern Ireland today. He's heading over there to, with a clear message, he says. Uh, the UK government will play its part to ensure political peace and democracy, but the parties must come together to restore power sharing and tackle cost of living pressures. Um, so he's published an article in the uh, Belfast Telegraph all about this. Stormont must be restored so politicians can deliver for the people of Northern Ireland. Uh, that's really good. Uh, and so what's going on here is that because of the so-called Northern Ireland Pro Protocol, which basically drew a border up the Irish Sea, uh, the unionist parties, uh, and particularly the DUP, are refusing to uh, put people forward for a new executive in Northern Ireland. And, and so there can be no Northern Ireland Assembly over there. So let's see what Boris has said in his article. Here he is, uh, quite appropriate image there. Uh, the government's commitment to the union is above politics, he says. So the union is secure. That is the implication. Now, do we believe that? Well, we'll see whether we believe that a little later. But anyway... Uh, he said uh, he said this, uh, it is because of the complexities of the situation that the protocol exists. Uh, it's why the protocol was agreed in good faith. And it's why those who want to scrap the protocol rather than seeking changes are focusing on the wrong thing. So anybody that's criticizing the Northern Ireland protocol uh, is doing the wrong thing. And uh, he said, uh, we've been told by the EU that it's impossible to make changes to the protocol text to actually solve these problems in negotiations because there's no mandate to do so. Uh, and he ended up by saying, I hope the EU's position changes. If it does not, there'll be a necessity to act. But he doesn't quite say what that action would be. So the question is, can any word that comes out of Boris Johnson's mouth be trusted? Well, let's go back to, uh, let's see, it was 2020. And this was what, this was the headline. This was the, the mainstream media was quoting Boris Johnson at, at that time as saying, over my dead body, will there be a border down the RSC? The problem was that wasn't quite what he said, David, because this is, if you have a look at this, he said, there will be no border down the RSC over my dead body. Now, I'm sorry, I may not be great at English, David, but that seems to be 180 degrees out from what the mainstream press said. So the question was, did he choose this form of, lie, uh, of choose this form of words in order to deliberately mislead, uh, because he knew that the media would uh, would present this in a particular way, or were the media briefed to present it in a particular way? But either way, uh, it was less than honest at the time for him to make that statement, um, because he knew very well that it was going to end up being a border down the IRC. There could be no other option actually, because as Britain left the EU, uh, the main requirement was to keep the Northern Irish border uh, open as per the agreement? Well, this is the same Boris who said, um, with regards to the infamous letter that he was being forced to, to send to the EU um, by our uh, rump parliament, uh, that he would rather die in a ditch than sign it. And then he signed it. Okay, so look, bottom line here, Patrick, is that my view on this is that uh, uh, the, what the protocol does is it creates an all-Ireland economy. That's defective, uh, de facto uh, United Ireland, and at least with respect to that. There's merely some minor politics to deal with in order to make the thing a done deal. 
I think when he claims these, uh, you know, the, the union is above politics and is, uh, you know, uh, basically unchangeable, I think he's not telling the truth. Well, there's some structural forces at play. Uh, and again, this is more or less unavoidable. We spoke at length about this, didn't we? Yes. Uh, during the whole Brexit uh, farrago and pointed out the fact that, uh, well, you know, the Good Friday Agreement and the fact that that was helped midwife by uh, none other than Michel Barnier at the time. Uh, the EU minister. It's a lot easier when both sides are under the European Union umbrella. Then it becomes tricky. It becomes a technical problem, a structural issue uh, after Brexit. So uh, unfortunately, there might be some side effects uh, to this course of events. Yes. Okay. Well, look, let's move on to uh, economy and cost of living uh, issues, uh, David, because we're going to talk about uh, food security and so on in a second and energy prices. But as sort of lead into that, uh, you want to cover a little bit on the uh, the Bank of England's recent mon monetary policy report. Yes, I, I thought it'd be interesting just to just to have a look at how how sterling, how how uh, reliable the Bank of England has been. So I've got here a, a little review of the last year on uh, monetary policy reports. So let's go back to uh, May twenty twenty one, uh, a little, uh, a little warning from the bank. It's, it's, it's not so good. You see, the the interest, the inflation is too low. It's below our two percent target. Uh, but don't worry, uh, it's it's going to come back up. And uh, and here's the, here's the graph, right? So in, in in six months or so, it'll be almost two percent. So that'll be okay. That's close enough. So although inflation's too low, we think it's we think it's going to be okay. So that's the message, one year ago. Uh, so if we if we go forward a quarter, um, this takes us to August uh, 2021, uh, and inflation is above our two percent target, uh, and we expect it to rise further. Oh, that's a bit embarrassing, but then it's going to fall back down to the target. Um, and uh, again, we have a graph, and there's the graph now. It's now it's now um, past two percent, heading straight up. Uh, and uh, but the prediction is within six months it's going to peak and it's going to come back obediently back down to the Bank of England target. So all will be fine. And uh, don't worry about a thing. But four percent, it, it could get as high as four percent. So this is this is a big change. Um, so if we then go forward another quarter to the November uh, policy report. Um, we expect inflation to rise to five percent in the spring and then fall back. Uh, we, we said four uh, percent. It, it's actually five. You know, we were a little, we were a little optimistic, but don't worry. You know, it's going to fall back because it's going to go up in the spring, um, and it's then going to fall back. And we have a graph. This is what we're predicting. So, uh, it's going to go up for another nine months, um, and then it's going to fall obediently back to right on the two percent. So we'll we'll be good. Around about twenty twenty four, we will be fine. Um, and if we go forward another three months. Uh, February 2022, uh, we expect inflation to rise to 7% in the spring and then fall back. So 4% wasn't right, 5%, but 7%, that's, that's where we're going to stop. And um, then it's going to fall back. And again, we have a graph. And there we go. So it's now going up. It's, as you see, the actual line is just going straight up. Um, but it's OK, because in six months' time, it's going to turn and it's going to come back down to less than 2%. We'll be fine. We'll be absolutely fine. Don't you worry about it. Uh, gentlemen, and um, then we come to May 
2022. We expect inflation to rise to 10% this year and the economy to slow. Reasons? Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has led to large increases in the price of things like energy and food. Good to know that they recognise that energy and food are in fact things. It's that sort of astute analysis that we go to the Bank of England for. Um, so there's going to be a further rise, uh, rise in the uh, price cap on energy. Both the war and the lockdowns in China are making it harder to import things. This is going to push up goods prices. As a result of these factors, so that's China, Putin, and uh, energy prices, nothing to do with the Bank of England, you understand, uh, then uh, prices are going to go up by around 10% this year. Um, the UK economy has been recovering from the effects of COVID, but we expect the increase in cost of living to lead to slower overall growth. And we've got a chart of the growth. Now, when they say slower, what they actually mean is none. Um, they're predicting almost no growth in 2022, nothing at all in 2023, and nothing at all in 2024. Yeah, but so David, David, it's fair enough because, because none is less than almost none. Yes, it, it is. Um, now, they're predicting high inflation and, and economic stagnation. Now, I, I grew up in the 70s, Mike. I can remember a word. What was, what was the word now? Uh, stagflation, yes. The Bank of England are telling us that stagflation cometh, which is very good because that's exactly a year and a half after the Mises Institute told us that stagflation was coming. Um, but they've got there in the end. And... Um, we have another uh, little graph here. This is the, oops, sorry, this is the uh, one on inflation. This is the current inflation prediction. So it's going to, you see that the actual is still going straight up. Um, it's past 6%, heading for 7 Well, it's going to go up for another nine months, and then it's going to turn down and obediently come right the way back down to 1%. So it'll be fine. Uh, don't you worry. Uh, about it at all, but it's now 10% inflation. Um, now, there's been many uh, reasons given for this, uh, Putin being one of them. Um, the one that I didn't see the Bank of England mentioning uh, was this. Uh, this is the uh, United Kingdom Bank of England quantitative easing total, um, £875 billion. Pounds. This is money printing and injection of the money into the economy, which obviously steals value from existing money in circulation and is, by definition, inflation. Um, not a word about that from the Bank of England. Um, they were silent on that. Now, this is obviously starting to look a little bit embarrassing uh, and politicians are starting to notice. And... Uh, so are the financial papers. So we, here we have the financial time. Bank of England faces its biggest inflation challenge since it became independent. Uh, uh, Chris Giles writes, after the Lord's Economic Affairs Committee accused the Bank of England of a dangerous addiction to quantitative easing and pumping up uh, spending each time things look difficult. <laughs> yes, that is spot on. That is their policy. Uh, the bank, uh, the central bank needs to decide how quickly to withdraw the stimulus and rein in inflation. I think it's a big moment for central banks because uh, they really have to demonstrate that they are, that's a quote from uh, Mervyn King, former 
former head of the Bank of England, I think this is a big moment for central banks because they really have to demonstrate that they're determined to restore price stability. It's too late to argue that we've got a few months in high inflation that will go away. It's more a question of a few years, the former governor said. And here we have uh, the Bank of England taking all of those uh, inflation predictions and putting them, putting them on one chart, which is a, a kind of funny chart because you see here the, the, the inflation predictions was, were consistently wrong, consistently way too low. But the only thing that the Bank of England is certain on is by, by the middle of 2024, she'll be fine. All, right? all the predictions come back down to, uh, to the, the required 2% range in the middle of 2024. Uh, that's consistent, and uh, I don't know if you believe that, Mike. I have my doubts. I don't um, believe it for a second. Let's just put that on record. <laughs> uh, David, do you think that's likely to peak out at 10% or uh, are the British uh, uh, financial authorities doing the same game they play in the United States, which is to uh, juggle the CPI, throw in all sorts of things that really don't uh, jump in price in order to uh, suppress uh, the inflation rate and leave out all the expensive things like fuel and uh, the cost of living and so forth. Yes, we're already doing that and we've still got 10%. This is the adjusted rate. This is the, the official rate. And um, I don't think it'll stop at 10%. It, they've, they've not been right so far. Why would they suddenly start being right now? Uh, we have here one of the effects of this is, of course, um, strange things happening in the mortgage market. Uh, here we've got U UK banks pool mortgage deals as borrowers rush to lock in rates. So rates are spiking and uh, there is uh, a frantic effort to try and get them fixed. Uh, so this is uh, Financial Times continues. The, the delays tend to disrupt housing chains, causing buyers to push for faster processing for fear of deals falling through. Uh, those in a chain are particularly affected since a failed or delayed mortgage application for one buyer can upset the plans of multiple participants. Sellers are wanting people to exchange quicker, but the problem is the banks are all taking longer. As a result, cash buyers have become more attractive to sellers because they avoid the mortgage application process and are often free of, property of a property buying chain. We are seeing more cash purchases through our agency partners. Uh, this is helpful because it can break a chain. Um, now, this is uh, interesting because um, the, there's a rush from cash to real assets. This is another bit of evidence of what we were talking about last week, the crack-up boom. As money loses its value, and it's losing value at 10% a year at the moment, saving becomes uh, much less attractive, and uh, you want to get rid of the cash as quickly as possible and get it into something real. So we're seeing cash buyers go into the housing market. Um, this is a very... Um, a sign of great economic distress, and we're seeing similar signs all across uh, the world. Uh, so, uh, David, I think the uh, the other point to make here is that the only reason that house prices haven't started coming down yet is because uh, although mortgage rates are starting to rise, they're not rising to a level yet where people are starting to suffer. And because there's this cash uh, coming into the housing market, as you say, uh, that is keeping prices inflation. But in the meantime, People that are trying to sell their homes don't have any particular urgency to do that. So, so they can they can wait out the chain if necessary. They obviously would prefer to have a cash buyer, but they can wait it out at this point. When we start sticking another three, four, five percent on that, uh, then perhaps that pressure starts to get a bit uh, higher for them to to, to move their uh, homes on. And at that point, we might start seeing house prices what coming down again. 
Well, this, this is very lightly, but we have to remember right now, Mike, that it's, it's the most easy money uh, position that I can remember. It, we never had this in the 1970s. The Bank of England base rate is 1%, right? Inflation's going to be 10%. Well, that's a, that's a real interest rate of minus 9%. It's minus 6% just now. So this is telling people to load up on debt, and people will still be responding to that incentive. Now, when the crunch finally comes, they'll be in a worse position than ever, uh, and there will, the crunch will come. Uh, but at the moment, we've got real interest, rate, interest rates of minus 6%. We never had that in the 1970s. We've never had it in, in living memory. Um, I think, I suspect we've never had it at all. Yes. Uh, certainly not up to up to uh, minus nine percent, and this is going to encourage people, at least for a little while longer, people and companies, uh, to maximise the debt and minimise holding cash. When when we talk about the crunch, uh, bear in mind that uh, the crunch is going to be uh, targeting a certain section of the home owners uh, than others. So you've got the big institutional uh, investment giants in America. You you've probably heard about BlackRock. Uh, scooping up properties. Yes. Well, a lot of people aren't aware they're doing that in the UK uh, as well. They're just doing it through their uh, subsidiaries, you could say unofficial subsidiaries like Lloyds Bank, Legal in General, Granger PLC. Uh, you'll find that BlackRock and some of these big uh, mega giants uh, from the US are, are major shareholders in all of those institutions. And who, who will be targeted? The middle class homeowner, uh, people who do buy to lets, people who run Airbnbs. And it only takes the government changing, uh, for instance, council tax schemes. Mm. We're starting to see talk about raising council tax for people who run their property like a business. Uh, green energy requirements uh, to upgrade to be carbon uh, uh, compliant, as it were. All these things will add to the cost mm. of owning the property. And then also the move to give tenants all sorts of rights and take them away or have the, the homeowner uh, be responsible for council tax, for instance. All of these things will squeeze the middle class homeowner and will move those properties up to the big institutional buyers. And so these are the trends and this collusion between government and these big institutions to squeeze out these homeowners who all got into the property market over the last 30 years. That's the thing to keep an eye on. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's move on then to energy prices. And uh, well, uh, as everybody in the UK will know, at least uh, there is a price cap on consumer energy prices. Uh, that price cap was lifted heavily in September last year. It was lifted heavily again in March, and this uh, is reviewed every six months. But Ofgem is now uh, suggesting that that price cap needs to be reviewed every three months. And of course, that's to make sure that the consumer can benefit from falling uh, gas prices if they should ever fall. Um, and uh, so they're now proposing that. If we just look at what the situation is with uh, historically with gas prices in the UK, uh, we can see that uh, uh, around the turn of the century, where was that? Around uh, 30, 30, uh, sorry, I've forgotten uh, the, the, the scale on that, but it was, so it's uh, pounds obviously per for whatever the, the unit of energy is that they're measuring there. Uh, it's up around the 155 level at the moment. It was up around 300. Uh, month or so ago. Um, so it has come down somewhat, but it's still massively higher than it was uh, in uh, at the turn of the century. So uh, uh, we're going to move the 
reconsider the price cap on a much more regular basis so that we can uh, make sure that people benefit from falling prices. But I'm not certain that that is a likelihood in the next uh, little period. But let's come on to food because, of course, that's the other big issue. And everybody would be glad to know that uh, Liz Truss, as we mentioned on Friday, was at the G7 uh, foreign ministers meeting on in Germany. Uh, and uh, they were talking about they released a communique on food security. And this is what they had to say. Uh, we will address, including in support of the United Nations Global Crises Response Group, uh, the causes and consequences of the global food crisis through a global alliance for food security. So uh, as we are saying with uh, health, uh, with you know international treaties and global treaties for uh, dealing with pandemics for the future, uh, we're likely to see similar types of global governance forming for uh, food security. Okay, this is the, one of the comments they made during this, to foster sustainable practices uh, to reduce food waste and loss, and where this is possible, sustainably increase our own production of agricultural products in line with the Agenda 2030 for sustainable development, while protecting climate, biodiversity, and the environment, in particular tackling climate and biodiversity challenges. So uh, we're not going to worry too much about food security, actually, because it's only where it's possible to fit it in around climate change and biodiversity and the environment and so on. Uh, that we need to worry about that. And of course, that is already seen in British government policy. So this is Michael Gove going back to 2019, talking about leaving the EU. And of course, we're leaving the common agricultural policy there. And he's saying we have a historic opportunity to deliver a farming policy which works for the whole industry. But what did that mean? That meant this. Uh, that meant uh, that uh, he would be encouraging sustainable farming, uh, fitting in with uh, sustainable development goals, Agenda 2030 and so on and particularly the environmental land management scheme to incentivize sustainable farming practices, create habitats for nature recovery, and establish new woodland to help tackle climate change. Now, what that means, create habitats for nature, uh, nature recovery, that means stop producing food and replace the farmland for producing food with something else. Um, so uh, it went on to say direct payments will be reduced fairly. This is for, under the Common Agricultural Policy, uh, starting from the 2021 Basic Payment Scheme year with the money released being used to fund new grants and schemes to boost farmers' productivity and reward environmental improvements. Uh, well, that's forked tongue language there because, of course, they weren't uh, boosting farmers' productivity. They were mainly rewarding so-called environmental improvements. Um, so we have a little bit of video here. This is uh, Harry Metcalf, and he uh, runs a YouTube channel. He's a farmer uh, in England. He runs a YouTube channel called Harry's Farm, amongst others. Uh, and he was commenting uh, a couple of days ago on what he's seeing in the, on the land around his farm. So let's just have a look at this. The other thing that's going on I've noticed around here, are all the environmental schemes you are now seeing in the fields. Obviously this is a field of wheat, but I can look around my neighbours and suddenly these sort of wildflower mixes are all now very visible. And those are the guys who have taken up the environmental schemes that the government's made available. And they're around 600-ish pounds a hectare you receive for growing wildflowers, etc., and pollen nectar mixes. That is also making the grain price go up because quite a lot of land, especially on the marginal areas where, around where I farm in the Cotswold, no end of people have entered this scheme. And that's probably um, reduced the actual UK harvest by a million tonnes, is what my grain merchant was telling me the other day. But it's very visible now, and you can understand, because it's guaranteed income. So, so let's just think about that, David. A, he's talking about the, the price of grain going up. Well, of course it's going to go up because of lack of availability, but a million tonnes 
less grain produced in the UK as a result of these land management schemes. Where's the food security in that? If, if Britain is already only 60% food independent, and in fact, if you're a vegan, it's actually up around the 80% uh, mark in terms of, uh, sorry, in, in terms of imports. So it's only 20% food independent. Uh, you know, where is this taking us? Well, it, it's certainly not taking us towards, uh, towards food security. It's not taking us towards strategic security. Um, and it's, it's destroying the farming industry as an industry capable of producing a product that people actually want and, and making it ever more dependent on just straight government handouts and subsidies. And that will corrode its abilities in the longer term to, uh, to produce um, at all. If you've got a field and you're getting a, a guaranteed government income, like a pension or a, um, a bailout or, um, or, or a handout, it, you, you'll not uh, invest in plant and machinery. You'll not invest in training a workforce. Uh, you'll not invest in anything. You'll just take the cash and um, quietly uh, live off it. Uh, and as we uh, have been reporting in the last couple of weeks, of course, it's not just cash for rewilding. Uh, it's also cash for leaving the industry uh, completely. So they're incentivizing people to leave the industry. Uh, they're saying this will free up land for younger generations to come in. But of course, those younger generations will have been through the relevant training programs, through the farming colleges and so on. And they will be uh, very enthusiastic to keep going on this trend towards rewilding and so on. So we're taking farmland, productive farmland, we're turning it into wildflower meadows. And in the meantime, we're effectively going to be starving because uh, we're going to see shortages. But look, we, we've got to... I just want to add, this is a perfect example of when the government gets involved uh, in, in the economy to, to manage the economy. Uh, the results are just wonderful. Uh, you know, what could possibly go wrong? They're literally intervening into the food supply. Well, uh, yes, indeed. And another area where the government has been managing the economy or stroke destroying it, of course, was COVID policy. Uh, and uh, of course, the uh, great manufacturer of the world these days is China. We buy everything from China. We don't have the capability to produce anything in the West anymore. We, we mainly get our uh, components and so on from China. Um, so I just wanted to remind everybody what is uh, going on in China at the moment. And uh, well, this tweet went, came out, uh, I think it's about 10 days ago now. Uh, we missed it at the time. Let's just have a look at the, uh, the video here. Uh, this is uh, the factory which is producing components for Apple products in particular, um, and in Shanghai, of course, and they have been experiencing significant lockdowns. Uh, but so it's uh, Quanta Computer Limited, um, and so the issue here is that the Chinese have been, because they've been pursuing a zero COVID policy, uh, have set up what they called closed loop production processes. And this is where workers are required to live in on-site dormitories. Uh, none of them are allowed to leave or enter the facility uh, for a month or more at a time. Uh, and uh, so they have suddenly decided to, to try to, uh, to fight back on that. But of course, this is... Uh, one of the things which is absolutely decimating supply chains at the moment, David. And so, you know, you're absolutely right to say quantitative easing because that's probably the largest component of this. But nonetheless, uh, government policy uh, and particularly COVID policy has, is part and parcel of uh, creating a, a lack of supply. And therefore, inevitably, that is going to push pressure on the prices as well. 
And, and let's remember the Green New Deal is named after FDR's New Deal, uh, during which in the greatest uh, depression and recession in United States history, uh, the government intervened to prop up farm prices and make food more expensive for the ordinary people by buying the food and destroying it. Um, that's your government working for you. Which a practice we still continue to this day. Well, indeed. <laughs> but you get government cheese surpluses, so there's always some some benefits. It, it, look, there, talk, I'll leave this. Talk about the energy crisis. The Bank of England, how, how can they possibly... Uh, put the war in Russia or Putin uh, as the scapegoat for that. You've got green energy policies. Uh, you've got quantitative easing. You've got sanctions. R Putin did not jack up the price of energy. Sanctions did. Uh, and so there, and at every turn, you have government policy, which is to blame. And again, they turn around and gaslight the public, as do the media. They don't ask any questions on this and just use the same old uh, blame game. Uh, and the public generally are none the wiser, unfortunately. Indeed. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you'd be very welcome there. There are options to help us out, uh, if, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but in any case, if you would uh, share any material you find on the various platforms, um, that would be absolutely fantastic. So now NATO uh, and NATO expansion. Um, let's uh, Let's bring this in. It looks like Sweden and Finland are uh, are on the cards, and David's going to cover this in a second. But just as an intro to that, sure. And what the big question is: uh, Is this the uh, more Article Five bait uh, that's being added to NATO's empire? It's eastwardly moving empire. This is the question. Yes, indeed. So, uh, David, uh, the headline here in the Telegraph is: Sweden's bid to join NATO shows Vladimir Putin's aggression doesn't pay. Now, this is a quote from uh, Jens Stoltenberg, which we'll see in just one second. But uh, what were your thoughts on what The Telegraph had to say? Well, The Telegraph has given the standard line as to, uh, you know, this is uh, Putin's uh, evil plan has backfired and, and isn't this a good thing? Um, but what we're actually seeing here is, is a secular shift, is a, is a completely root and branch change of the geopolitical landscape and how countries are associating with one another. Uh, and it's, it's quite remarkable. 200 years of military ne neutrality, as, as is stated on this uh, headline here from Telegraph, um, has gone, has been swept away in weeks. So that settled policy is now, is now a thing of the past. And uh, Sweden is going to be part of NATO, uh, and, and so is Finland. So you see here all the Nordic countries who have very strong uh, ethnic ties right across to to Britain and to um, Ireland and France, and the, the, there are there are there are huge ethnic ties here, and you're seeing people who have got a similar um, origin um, assemble together in a into a similar policy in a way that's not really been seen before. A, a remarkable shift. Um, right. Okay. Well, let's let's just uh, sorry. Let's just uh, put uh, Stoltenberg on screen because he. He did give uh, a little briefing uh, to NATO yesterday, or, and uh, well, let's just see what he had to say about this. Russia's war in Ukraine is not going as Moscow had planned. They failed to take Kiev. They are pulling back from around Kharkiv. Their major offensive in Donbas has stalled. 
Russia is not achieving its strategic objectives. President Putin wants Ukraine defeated, NATO down, North America and Europe divided. But Ukraine stands, NATO is stronger than ever, Europe and North America are solidly united. So, David, uh, first of all, do you think that uh, is an accurate assessment of the situation, that Europe and the United States are united? It's not an accurate statement of, of, of what Putin's strategic objectives were. It's a whole series of straw man arguments. Putin's strategic objectives, as I understand it, were, were to prevent the Ukraine becoming part of NATO and to um, provide a defence to the um, to the Russian-speaking people in the Donbass and to provide uh, a defensible border which would include Crimea and Sevastopol. Those, as I understand it, are his strategic objectives. And I don't see any of those noticeably failing. That's not to say things have gone as they'd hoped, but those strategic objectives look like they are being met. This NATO down Ukraine defeated US and EU at each other's throats narrative. Uh, yeah, none of those things are happening, but uh, did, did Putin expect them to? Did, is that, was that what his plan was? I think that's fanciful. Uh, indeed. Uh, but uh, well, what about Erdogan and Turkey? Well, this is a very interesting um, uh, report here from Al Jazeera. Um, so Erdogan says Turkey's opposed to Finland and Sweden uh, entering NATO, and Ankara could block the pair from joining um, because it requires unanimous agreement. So Turkey's uh, President Erdogan uh, said it's not possible for Ankara to support uh, Sweden and Finland joining a transatlantic military alliance in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, signalling a possible hurdle. Speaking to reporters in Istanbul on Friday, er Erdogan said Turkey, uh, which is already part of NATO, did not have positive views on the Scandinavian countries' move to seek membership, accusing them of being guest houses for terrorist organisations. There you go, that's quite a quote. Um, and um, more on that just in a moment, because that, that, that objection seems to be uh, being smoothed over. But we'll come to a couple of quotes on that uh, in a moment. So here we have the Times uh, reporting uh, NATO fast-track memberships of uh, Finland and Sweden to minimise the threat from Russia. Um, so, uh, and um, here we've got a quote. Um, this is a historic day, a new era begins. I always get nervous when politicians start talking like that. So that's President uh, Ninisto of Finland, and he's announced his country's application for membership. Uh, Magdalena Andersson, uh, Prime Minister of Sweden, said our Social Democrats had ditched 200 years of non-alignment uh, by joining NATO. The board has decided the party will work towards Sweden applying for membership in NATO. Uh, she said committing to one of the biggest geopolitical shifts since the end of the Soviet Union. And Anne Lin, 60, uh, Sweden's foreign minister, hailed a historic decision. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has worsened the security situation for Sweden and for the whole of Europe. So... Um, they then continued that the alliance has played down uh, Turkey's criticism of the failure by Finland and Sweden to condemn terrorists, a reference to Kurdish separatist PKK and YPG groups. Um, 
The group has uh, waged an insurgency against Turkey since 1984 in a conflict that has claimed tens of thousands of lives. Turkey has made it clear that its intention is not to block membership, Stoltenberg said. I'm confident that we will be able to address the concerns that Turkey has expressed in a way that doesn't delay membership. So Stoltenberg says there's no problem. Uh, and Anthony Blinken, US Secretary of State, held talks with uh, Mevlut, uh, oh dear, uh, Kav oh, I'll, not, I'll not even attempt that, that, that surname, Turkey's foreign minister in Berlin yesterday and said he was confident consensus would be reached. This is the process, he said, and NATO is a place of dialogue. So how do you like that, gentlemen? NATO is um, a place of dialogue. It's, it's not an a, a, a out-of-date, defunct military alliance that's now um, spending its time stirring up uh, wars in strong countries and bombing weak ones. Uh, before I get Patrick to, to answer that, I just wanted to make the point that Stoltenberg during his press conference, by the way, he wasn't there in person because he has tested positive for COVID, he said. But uh, one of the things, he, the language that he was using, Patrick, was it's, it's sovereign in Finland or sovereign countries. They're entitled to make up their own, their own minds and make their own decisions. And of course, this is exactly the rhetoric that we had from NATO over Ukraine's membership. Same argument, yeah. yes. So they don't believe in the indivisibility of uh, of, of security, uh, which is uh, an international uh, tradition. So again, we're shifting into this kind of uh, liberal internationalist uh, by the letter uh, and uh, using international law as it's convenient, as and when, and ignoring uh, realist uh, international yeah. relations. But as David pointed out with Turkey, they're, they're definitely smoothing that over. Croatia was also a potential uh, a party there that could uh, basically throw a spanner into the works. They look to be more coming on side now that this uh, objection with Turkey is being uh, worked on. Turkey also wants a lift on the banning of arms sales uh, as well. And I believe that's in some way connected uh, with their position on the Kurds vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, these Scandinavian countries. So again, this this can, this is all uh, Erdogan is, and as we'll show in a minute, you know, there's always an opportunity to angle for some leverage. Uh, Turkey will always uh, put its hand in and do uh, e either hold something up or take an adversarial position that you might surprise people. And almost every time, what they're doing is angling for some kind of leverage. But uh, as, as David pointed out there, this was the pivotal uh, move here, was the dramatic U-turn by the Social Democrats um, in Sweden. And it just, it still leaves people wondering, uh, this is the leader here, Magdalena Andersson, it's clear from our freedom from alliances has, has served Sweden well, but our conclusion now is that it will not serve us well in the future. That's an ominous statement. Uh, who knows what will happen in the future with regards to the expansion of this war. If it does expand, then you're going to look back at statements like this mm. um, as very, very pivotal um, in history. Now, Italy is also a potential uh, problem here in this. This is uh, Salvini. What's he saying? Uh, does pushing NATO's borders to Russia's borders bring peace closer? Asks Matteo Salvini. He's head of the Northern League uh, in Italy. Um, it is one thing to send uh, economic and military aid at the beginning of the crisis. Um, it is another matter to do it now. It is uh, necessary to achieve peace, uh, and sending weapons will not help, added Salvini. So um, will this level of influence uh, change uh, Italy's position on this issue? Maybe, maybe not. But it, it is interesting to see there's some objection there. Obviously, Northern League uh, traditionally wanting to reestablish ties uh, with Russia uh, and uh, bypass sanctions and things like that. So there is a schism there. But here's the schism that you don't see in the media. Nobody's talking about Hungary. 
been very quiet. We just picked this up off the daily news of Hungary. Uh, will Orban hinder Sweden and Finland from joining NATO? Because you have to have a unanimous vote amongst NATO member states uh, in order to make this deal final uh, regarding Sweden and Finland. So is Hungary, Hungary is definitely an outlier uh, in terms of Europe. Uh, they, they are in almost every policy, including allowing NATO to use Hungarian uh, land or overland or airspace or whatever to, to ferry weapons into Ukraine. Uh, also on the Russian gas issue, mm. uh, Hungary has been an outlier on that, not going along uh, with Brussels, not going along with the, uh, with the Americans and the British diktats. Uh, on uh, Russian oil and gas and energy. So are they going to do the same on NATO? Will they do the same on NATO? That's a good question. So that, and the fact that it's not really being talked about in the Western media tells me that there might, it, there might be something there. We'll see. Okay, well, of course, uh, who's leading this charge uh, for expansion of NATO? It is the UK uh, because, of course, NATO is being hesitant. So the UK, as we reported last week, was over to Finland and Sweden to make uh, bilateral defense agreements uh, saying that we will ride to your rescue whether uh, you join NATO or not. Well, clearly that has moved forward and they are joining NATO, but nonetheless, the UK is leading the charge. And so just to get an idea of where the UK wants to see NATO go next, let's just have a listen to what Liz Truss said uh, at the NATO Foreign, Office, uh, Foreign Minister's uh, meeting. Good morning. I'm here in Berlin at the NATO foreign minister's meeting. We were very pleased to be joined by our friends Finland and Sweden. If they do apply to join NATO, the UK is strongly supportive of that. We're also working closely with the Ukrainians and the Poles and others to make sure that Ukraine has NATO standard defence. It's also important today that we focus on a global NATO, because as well as protecting Euro-Atlantic security, we also need to watch out for Indo-Pacific security too. Thank you. So David, Russia now, China tomorrow. Yes, um, and uh, the, the view is that China will make a move on um, on Taiwan, which is always possible because they are re-establishing their, you know, the, the Han Empire, as I mentioned before. This is this is a, a, a pretty expansionist state, um, and the plan is again, I I suspect, to use economic and blockade power rather than um, put. Um, aircraft carriers into the range of uh, Chinese missiles and US Marines on the shores of, uh, of Taiwan. So it will be um, weapons, it will be uh, economic blockade, economic shutdown, excluding China from SWIFT, excluding China from the oil and, um, and uh, mineral and and, and metal imports that it needs in order to function. It requires a huge amount of commodity imports uh, for, the, for the Chinese economy to, to function and look to destroy the economy as a means of war. That's, that's the strategy. And, uh, and, and then the, the military part really has just to enable that and give it time to work. That's the strategy that's been, been used against Russia. Um, 
and it's a strategy that will be used against China. It's unclear whether this strategy is viable against such large continental opponents, however. Uh, it's also unclear whether it's viable, bearing in mind how reliant the West is uh, on China for production of many, many things. Uh, but Patrick, uh, we mentioned uh, this article uh, on the program on Friday. Well, on this issue of arms buildup, uh, we didn't have time to, to, to complete this uh, in the interest of time on Friday. But this is, again, an article here. This is on Sputnik International. This is banned uh, in the United Kingdom. So if you're in the UK, your ISPs have been instructed by the government to block all the Rus main Russian uh, media outlets. Uh, so, but this is an important uh, piece here, sleepwalking into disaster, how US establishment lost fear of escalating the Ukraine crisis. And the person uh, talking about this here is Vladimir Goldstein. He's a professor at Brown University. I believe he's the chair of the Department of Slavic Studies there. That's an Ivy League university. Uh, he is uh, un unable to be seen by the British public on this interview, so we thought we'd share this with you. And this is an important point. Besides myopia and the self-defeating dimension of censorship, uh, one should highlight two obvious facts related to censorship and the dismal uh, or the dismissal of alternative interpretations um, as propaganda. He's talking about our governments here. And these are those two points uh, which are important. First, governments resort to this tactic uh, to achieve some sort of consensus which they don't want to be challenged. Indeed, ever since the violent overthrow of the legitimate government in Kiev in 2014, the Western consensus has been established, and that is Ukraine is resisting Russian aggression. This aggression is getting more and more out of hand and is bound to spread further. To stop it, we need a stronger NATO. So, dear taxpayers, get ready to pay more for NATO expansion and build up the military. That's point number one. I think that is a quite astute point by uh, Professor Goldstein. And there's the second point. The second is the war hysteria and the unchallenged demonization of the other side serve one additional purpose, a diversion, a diversion from all sorts of failures by the government. He's talking about Western governments, but he could also easily be talking about the government in Ukraine uh, as well. And then just further on from that, so I am not surprised that numerous Western governments, British and American in particular, have, a deci have decided to resort to various forms of modern censorship for the sake of these two myopic goals, military buildup and diversion, uh, says uh, Vladimir Goldstein. And you can follow him on social media uh, if you can't read uh, some of these media outlets. And just brief, very briefly mentioned, of course, that consensus has a name and it's called the Rapid Response Mechanism. Again, a British-led initiative brought to the G7 in 2017 uh, and agreed by the G7 in 2017, a common narrative. And that is absolutely what we're seeing. An enforced consensus yes. throughout the media and throughout government. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, uh, as of style then, and well, Eurovision as well. Well, this is the segue to the as of style drama here. The Eurovision Song Contest uh, was, what? When, when was it, this weekend? Yes, it was yeah. Saturday night. Yeah, and Friday we said that Ukraine was going to win. Yes. It was a fait accompli. Well, here's the Guardian, who obviously loves co covering these sort of cultural Postmodern extravaganzas here. I, I, I draw the line at calling it a cultural. <laughs> but anyway, well, that's a... well, so Ukraine wins the 2022 Eurovision Song Contest, not without controversy. There was uh, some some fraud on the voting, whatever. But by and the by, uh, they've won here. But th this is the image the media is not showing too much. 
this the most bizarre character here. The BBC has airbrushed this sort of Sambo, uh, uh, hip hop, breakdancing, b-boy uh, part of this orchestra here. They airbrushed him out because it's really kind of disconcerting, the, the whole imagery. This is, as, as Eurovision goes, Mike, this is extremely even bizarre by Eurovision uh, standards here. But uh, nonetheless, um, as of Stahl, the, the holdouts in Mariupol, the Azov Battalion that are uh, uh, hiding underneath the Azovstal plant that we talked about, um, they actually uh, became a subject of the Eurovision Song Contest during their, uh, at the end of their song, they, they called out for, the, for help to save these militants. We've got that video clip. Let's, let's watch that. I ask all of you, please help Ukraine, Mariupol. Help Azovstal right now. Okay, well that's pretty clear. So they're they're calling out help the the Az Azov battalion fighters that are uh, trapped under Azovstal that won't surrender. Uh, somebody and somebody anybody help these uh, poor uh, militants uh, there. So here's Mariupol. There's a here's a shot here overhead. This is what it looks like. Uh, total devastation in this industrial uh, corridor here. So this is the Azovstal plant, and these are the holdouts from the Azov Battalion. I'm pairing them up with NATO, Mike, uh, because they are armed, backed, and advised by NATO. So Azov Battalion uh, is under the NATO umbrella, effectively, here. And there's Volin, we showed him before, Kalinia, uh, and also Ilya. So these are the sort of public faces of the Azovstal holdouts there from the Azov uh, Battalion. And uh, so we'll move that there. So this is what they're saying. This is the message. Surrender is not an option. So they've been offered multiple opportunities to surrender. They've refused to do it. Uh, but at the same time, and this is where it gets bizarre, Mike, at the same time, this is the message. You must rescue us now. So we won't surrender. We need to be rescued. So effectively, they're kind of wanting to suspend the rules of war uh, for their particular situation here. It is the most bizarre thing. Uh, so you must rescue us now. They've called out to Elon Musk. Uh, they've got world leaders on the phone. Uh, they've sent their wives out uh, to, to see the Pope. We'll show you that uh, in a second here. There's one of the uh, characters there. That's the uh, uh, Ilya uh, Semlyanko. And I just want to remind people that it was only a couple of days before that shot. He didn't have an eye patch. I don't know what's going on there. I just thought I'd throw that out because the Western media are really uh, using these characters to kind of represent this issue. They're building a kind of a mythology with this. Uh, are they going to be martyrs or are they going to be POWs? Mm. Um, or are they going to be rescued and be heroes? Those are the outcomes and we don't know what the Hollywood ending is going to be uh, for this particular story. And that's exactly what it's uh, shaping up to be. That's Ilya right there. No eye patch. I don't know what happened. Maybe he uh, knocked his eye out uh, in the couple of days uh, between those photos here. But uh, Turkey, uh, Erdogan riding to the rescue. He's offering a sea evacuation. Here, they've got some of the uh, fighters there from, this, this isn't from the basement, that's a previous photo, I think, from, I believe, one of the plants that was used as a field hospital. But nonetheless, Erdogan is uh, moving in, trying to create some leverage there. He's got deals in horse trading with Russia and Syria, plenty of it. So he's an, imposed himself here, much to the chagrin of Moscow, uh, no doubt. So he's ready, but it's not going to happen because Russia will not approve uh, this transfer at the moment because uh, it's in Russian-held territory. Mariupol, 
And the, the fighters want to be evacuated uh, via Berdansk, which is nearby. Who knows why they want to be moved from Mariupol port to that port? I'm not sure. But things are getting constantly uh, added to their list of demands. They're begging and demanding at the same time, begmanding, uh, basically here. So, uh, and uh, Kedarov, he is the uh, mercurial Chechnyan leader here, Ramzan Kedarov. He's like the Donald Trump of Telegram uh, in Russia. That's the best way I can describe it. This is what he's saying to Erdogan. He's saying the administration of President Erdogan uh, uh, was ready to evacuate the Nazis of the Azov regiment trapped in the basements of Azovstal. With all due respect to the leader of the Muslim state, I would like to remind you that the Azov regiment is a fascist Nazi criminal armed formation that is involved to, uh, to numerous atrocities and killings of civilian population in Donbass, and uh, Katerol finishes off. In the cellars of Azovstal, these fascist criminals keep uh, civilians, using them as human shields. Uh, the members of this bandit organization are known in Ukraine and beyond for their regular statements insulting the great Islamic values and ridiculing the religion of Islam in general. So he's basically trying to put the uh, uh, kibosh on Erdogan's mm -hmm. Uh, desire to rescue these guys here. It doesn't look like it's going to happen at the moment, but who knows uh, what things, there could be some kind of a deal brokered. But this is the really interesting part here. You know about the White Helmets, Banna, how they did their Western tour uh, during the Syrian conflict to kind of drum up support for the, for the war effort. Well, these are basically, I don't know what we can call them, uh, they're calling them the fighters' wives. Um, but if we just change that headline there, Nazi Azov battalion wives called for entire garrison to be evacuated. It changes things. So this is completely omitted from most of the coverage that the Azov battalion are kind of Nazi, a Nazi-affiliated or Nazi organization. Uh, so what are we going to call it? We'll just call these the Azov WAGs. Um, so they're doing their European tour right now, lobbying to get their husbands and boyfriends, fiancés, released. And they even went to Rome here, Mike. This is a a fantastic one. Please don't let them die. Wives of Azov fighters beg Pope. So they've gone to the Pope and they said, Pope, can you do something for us? You know, can you get our husbands released? Can you send the Pope mobile? I don't know what they're expecting there. But just look at that headline. Now, if we just change that to uh, please don't let them die. Wives of Azov Nazis beg the Pope. It changes the whole character of the story. So I'm just giving you an example of how our propaganda and how our media can sculpt a narrative by omitting certain details in order to sell it uh, to the Western uh, population there. So again, there they are. And this is, this is the most interesting of all uh, the uh, stories here. The Azov wives or husbands are be being betrayed by Ukrainian traders. So they're turning on the Ukrainian, blaming Ukrainian military for betraying uh, their husbands and somehow uh, responsible for them being in this predicament where they're stuck, this, they're surrounded. The city of Mariupol is totally controlled by the Russian uh, forces right now. So let's look at what they're saying. And this piece by the Telegraph is a propaganda masterpiece. It really is. This is a masterclass in propaganda. Let's look at how this one shapes up. So this is what they're saying. Currently on a tour of Europe, so they're doing a European tour as of WAGs, uh, the women uh, this week uh, spoke to the Pope, spoke to Pope Francis and said uh, they're hoping that he might intervene. Uh, he said he wanted to prepare a humanitarian corridor for Azovstal, but Putin 
doesn't want to let the soldiers go. Say the wives there, there's a couple of them. Um, some of them are quite young as well. So and there's some of them in their 30s. Uh, so, and they go on here. Now, they're now in Paris and they hope to visit Britain to ask Boris Johnson for help as well. And they've yet to secure their visas. Uh, I spoke to my husband last night. Uh, they are out of food and they're out of water, says Katerina uh, Propopanko. Uh, so again, a desperate situation for the fighters there. Olga, uh, here she's 31. She's saying uh, of her husband, Sergei, uh, he's wounded. Uh, he told me they're out of medicine. Their wounds are beginning to rot and more. Uh, they're just lying down using their internal will. Um, that is how they hold on. So it's very inspirational. So they're really pushing this, uh, the hero narrative here. So again, Russia's offered multiple corridors for the wounded for, it's almost a month now, multiple times. They refused every time because they said, we can't surrender. And here they go on. Now this is where they're wanting to, I said, redefine warfare. And this is what's going on in the media. It's weird, it's not a war, says Hannah. Uh, instead, the Azov fighters are being starved and shelled. It's a siege. Uh, in fact, I would say it's just murder. So it's no longer war, but this is, this is murder by Putin of the Azov regiment. So it's an incredible uh, jump, isn't it? So, and we'll go on here, and the, the postmodernist uh, reframing continues. Of course, nobody knows better than Russians upon whose psyche the Nazi blockade of Leningrad remains etched. The awful realities of siege warfare. Now they're inflicting the same uh, pitiless uh, constriction once visited upon them on their desperate enemies. Uh, and this is again from the Telegraph uh, here. <laughs> So for many Ukrainians, it was, wow, the war has started, says Yulia, but we have been fighting this war since 2014. That's why they, like Putin, don't talk about February's invasion as a war. They merely regard it as an escalation. So their telegraph is framing here is that the, this was some kind of a war with Russia since 2014, when in fact Russia wasn't occupying Donetsk and Lugansk. This was a civil war. So the telegraph is involved in heavy reframing here. And they're using the story of the WAGs, the Azov WAGs, in order to advance these, these narratives here, which are the same narratives that our politicians are advancing. So Yulia suggesting here, and this is the, uh, the, the betrayal, of uh, uh, Volodymyr uh, Baranyuk, uh, commander of Ukraine's 36th Marine Brigade in Mariupol, had close contacts with the Russians, she says. The reality was he turned out to be a traitor. Uh, and went into Russian captivity, uh, even when Marines still were there. So she's saying he, he's a traitor for getting captured by the Russians, and that's why the Azov regiment is trapped there. Their husbands are, are trapped there. And just to go on, uh, every Azov soldier who has surrendered during the last eight years has been tortured and killed by the Russians, says uh, Yulia here. Uh, and uh, she, she goes on to say the Russians made propaganda videos with him and then they tortured him and killed him and took a photo, sent his dead body, uh, of his dead body, sent it to the mother. So we can't verify if any of this happened. I yeah. couldn't find it, but the Telegraph is printing it as if it happened, as they say, not challenging it. So that's something to flag there, a possible something uh, to question here. And, uh, and this is what they're saying. That's why the whole world must understand that cap captivity is not an option for the Azov Regiment. So you see how they built uh, the narrative here. So they're saying this is why they're not surrendering because Russia 
uh, will kill and torture uh, anyone that they capture. Uh, and so when in fact the evidence that we've seen and we've even showed on this program um, is that it, actually the opposite is also true. Yes. Uh, Le Monde just completed an investigation, French uh, publication Le Monde, showing un undoubtedly uh, who tortured and killed the Russian POWs, um, ID'd the person uh, who was in charge and uh, put him at the place, confirmed the location and the timeline, uh, the day, uh, the hour, everything. So that's an open and shut case. That's gone to the UN. The UN has uh, acknowledged that Ukraine is uh, torturing and uh, summarily, uh, summarily executions of Russian POWs. So that's that, that's the opposite narrative of what you're seeing uh, in these pieces like the Telegraph. And the thing that surprises me, Mike, about all these is that th at no point will any of these journalists push back on any of these claims uh, and ask for any verification. It just gets printed um, as if it's fact. And not that we're surprised by that because we see that every day. Yeah. Uh, but again, this th this is a high stakes war. This is potentially a world war. So. So the Azov drama it encapsulates so many different issues um, that are used to shape uh, how this conflict um, is being portrayed uh, globally. Uh, David, any thoughts on that? Yes, and what's what the Telegraph and others are not getting at is is what's the the, the key question here, which is why can't they surrender? Right, two possible explanations: they'll be they'll be tortured and then shot out of hand by the Russians or they will be made to stand trial for war crimes that they have committed by the Russians and, um, and quite possibly would face the death penalty for what they've done themselves. This is all about where you think uh, the, the, the rule of law actually lies, whether you think either party or, or one of the parties can be, can be trusted to have a, a, a fair process um, the West can't really point any fingers here because after the Second World War, there was Victor's Justice at Nuremberg, um, encouraged and egged on by the Russians. So the, there's plenty to suggest that, that um, there might be some truth in both narratives, but there's no effort by the British press to actually uncover it. And that's the, that's the big disappointment there in terms of the, the nature of the reporting. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah, they, and uh, the, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that uh, uh, Ukrainian POWs are be, being treated uh, good by Russians in captivity. There's, there's scores of videos uh, about that. But clearly, these guys, as David said, uh, they definitely don't want to be uh, captured. And they've even said themselves that uh, we're either facing a prison sentence or a death penalty. Um, and they're, they're not saying it's because of what they've done, as David alluded to correctly. They're saying that's just because that's what Russians do to people like us, basically. Yeah, yeah OK, right. Uh, we'll need to move on and jump forward in the schedule a little bit and say welcome to Katie Joe. Uh, and uh, well, Katie Joe, uh, what would you like to start with here? Well, first of all, before we get on to your main topic, did you have any thoughts on uh, on the Eurovision Song Contest, which was such a wonderful event on Saturday night? Do you, do you know what? It was really funny, actually, because I've never watched the Eurovision Song Contest. And on Saturday, we had uh, family and friends over. And my mum had said that there'd been people talking about, um, you know, how we must vote for Ukraine. And, uh, and I thought, OK, well, let's have a little watch. Let's have a little watch of it. And um, well, it, it was it was it was, you know, 
it was clear to see that every single person was voting for them. Obviously, they were virtue virtue signaling because they were they they were terrible. It was awful. Um, the UK were miles ahead. Um, you know, normally it's nil pois for, for the UK, but they were miles ahead, top of the top of the table, and then all the votes came in, and Ukraine just jumped to the top, um, like we all um, thought they would. Yes. So it was uh, like it always is. It's political, isn't it? You know, yes. and uh, and I, I never watch it. I, I can't be bothered with it. So. No. Well, this is this is this is quite right, and it always <laughs> it always is always has been a political uh, thing. But look, uh, yeah. we want to we want to talk about uh, motherhood here. Motherhood. It was Mother's Day in America last week, and Calvin Klein, uh, their Mother's Day campaign featured all different types of families. Um, there was a mother breastfeeding her baby and an interracial couple. And both these shots were absolutely gorgeous, beautiful shots. Uh, but you can imagine the controversial shot, controversial shot that uh, caused the huge divide in opinion was of the pregnant trans uh, man. Uh, Roberto, who is heavily pregnant in these photos, poses with his partner, Erica, a transgender woman. Um, the couple's words on the campaign read, uh, we can reproduce biologically or from the heart. Um, how about both? I think that's what normally happens. Um, and today, in support of women and mothers around the world, we highlight the reality of new family. The campaign has received 30,000 likes and hundreds of comments in support, such as, I love to see this anti-exclusivity campaign by a brand as legendary as yours. How nice, long live diversity. Thank you for sharing different types of motherhood. That last statement says it all for me, motherhood. Uh, when you decide you want to be a man, you can't decide you want to have a baby. That's the, that gift, that privilege is for women only. It always has been and it always will be. Um, the campaign has received obviously a lot of backlash as well from people who were outraged by the advert. Obviously these were straight away classed as transphobic and in an article by Ariana Bayo, um, she, uh, for Indy 100, she specifically states, people with misinformed ideas about pregnancy and gender took to Twitter. Misinformed ideas about pregnancy and gender. Would that be the idea or the fact maybe that women have babies? I don't know. Um, I'm obviously terribly misinformed. Um, many have boycotted the Calvin Klein campaign over this. Um, one thing I was really pleased to see, though, was that the couple have called their son Noah. The, the baby boy has been born and they've stated that he is a boy. So they're not actually doing this, playing this stupid game of, um, you know, we, he, we, we don't know what he is and we're not going to assign either gender to him and let him choose. So that 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 was at least something um, that was something good to read. Um, now, the term chest feeding. Um, yes. Bring the next slide on. The term chest feeding is now widely used. Uh, after having a conversation with a friend of mine actually the other day, people are actually starting to use this in everyday language. She was having a conversation with a friend of hers and she was actually saying chest feeding in their conversation. Um, this, uh, this man uh, gives birth to, uh, this was a few years ago, gave birth to a little boy after not knowing he was pregnant for 10 weeks. He was thrilled with his wonderful team of midwives that used the appropriate pronouns. And if they made any mistakes, they would always apologize. I bet they did. <laughs> it could cost them their job if they didn't. Um, he was able to chest feed his son and was really happy about this as he knows it's the best start for him. Although he has since had surgery um, to remove his breasts, 
which felt amazing, he said, although he's sad that he won't be able to breastfeed, a chest feed, any future children. He's holding off any more surgery as he would love a bigger family. Confused is not the word. He's had a baby after starting his transitioning to becoming a man, breastfed his baby, and then he's had his breast removed, but he still wants more children in the future. Um, I mean, I think the act of having children is actually quite a selfish act in a way for anyone who does it. You have children because you want children. It's, you know, you bring them into this life. They don't ask to come here. So the role of the mother, for me, I feel carries huge responsibilities. And surely anyone that wants the best for their baby, uh, such as this man, um, knows that breastfeeding is the best thing. So he, why on earth he's had his breast removed if he wants more children? I don't know. It's 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 absolutely nonsensical. Um, so, but the next article I have, which is um, a, a way we're gonna, you know, we don't need mother anymore. We can completely exterminate the mother because the artificial intelligence nanny has arrived. An artificial um, uh, article a couple of months ago tells us how an AI may uh, be used in conjunction to optimize the generation of human life. The comparison to the matrix is scary. AI assists the development via algorithms and artificial wombs. The AI nanny might aid the growth of human kids in a long-term embryo culture device and feeds them with an optimized mix of nutrition, nutritious fluids. It sounds like some crazy conspiracy, just like most of the subjects I cover, but it's not. This is happening. This is reality now, you know. It won't happen anytime soon, they say. They are obviously using animals at the moment as experimenting, uh, and this sentence made me laugh out loud, as experimenting on human embryos older than two weeks is prohibited under international law. And I, I say that, you know, it made me laugh, obviously, because experimental and deadly vaccines, the removal of tissues from aborted fetus uh, babies, babies while they're still alive, for, the cell lines, um, August harvest thing, these are totally acceptable, are they? Totally ethical, um, you know, uh, it's just nuts. Um, so they've said there, of course, this is not, not everything is a hopeless dystopia. There are certain advantages to it. In the past, he's speaking like giving birth is already in the past. In the past, the process of producing kids with people has been a lengthy, drawn out and unpleasant process. How would he know? <laughs> That's what I want to know. How would he know? I absolutely loved being pregnant with my girls. And even though I was incredibly poorly with my son, I would never have had it any other way. Um, they say in this article, it could aid mothers who can't have children and need a surrogate. After all, the population is about to start shrinking by the billions by the end of the century and fertility rates around the globe are collapsing at a frightening rate. I wonder why that is. What on earth could be causing that then? So, um, so we now are, how are we gonna feed these babies? How are we gonna feed them? Well, don't fear, they're onto that one as well. Uh, Forbes found an article last year titled Got Milk about a company called B-I-O-M-I-L-Q. They are creating human breast milk in a lab. They have successfully made the world's first cell-cultured human milk from mammary cells outside the breast. When you listen to the interview with Michelle Egger, the company's CEO and co-founder, she explains that this breakthrough is as close to breast milk as possible. It contains the majority of nutritional complexities of breast milk with the practicality of formula. 
while B-I-O-M-I-L-Q's 100% human milk lacks antibodies, the nutritional and bioactive composition of our product is closer to that of breast milk than to bovine-based infant formula. Our, our product will support immune development, microbiome population, intestinal maturation, uh, and brain development in ways that bovine-based formula fundamentally cannot. Um, I would say there is a need for a better alternative than bovine-based formulas uh, for these mothers who are unable to breastfeed their babies. Uh, babies' formulas um, have the most horrendous ingredients in them. Horn syrup is normally top of the list. Um, I was lucky enough to breastfeed both my daughters, absolutely loved it for about 10 months. Um, and I was devastated when I couldn't breastfeed my son. He was born with dysphagia, um, one of the worst cases this country's ever seen. He couldn't even swallow, um, cope with his own saliva. Um, so I um, expressed every two hours, day and night for about four months until the stress of everything, all his operations and living in the hospital meant that um, I, I couldn't produce any more milk for him. Um, and when we were in hospital, he was also giving this terrible formula that caused him to develop necrotizing enterocolitis, which is uh, a, a, a where the bowel dies. And he, we had a terrible time. And I was sent home with a baby that could, uh, could only cope with this really watery milk. And he, because he was gagging constantly, he just used to vomit all the time. So I researched constantly the, the constitution of uh, formula milk and baby milk and came up with my own formula. I, I used goat's milk, raw goat's milk, and I added healthy fats such as ghee, olive oil, hemp oil. Um, I added molasses for sugars. I added so many whole food, um, real foods to his milk. And he came on beautifully. Um, five years, uh, Tommy was tube fed solely for, um, and I, he only ever had real food down his uh, feeding tube. Um, when I told his gastro, I've said this before on the program. When I told his gastroenterologist and his surgeon, they were so shocked and alarmed that, um, and I was so worried by their reaction. I actually didn't take him back because I thought they were going to take him away from me. But later on, now years later, when I see different consultants, they wish that other parents would do the same. Um, so there are alternatives out there, you know, that we can use. We don't have to go down the formula route. And I do hope with that those that are experiencing this crisis in America with the formula crisis, um, those that can afford it will look for other alternatives because it's absolutely horrendous out there. Um, but this isn't going to help those with the low, you know, that fall into that low bracket. Um, income bracket that's just that's just not going to help them they are reliant on these this on free infant formula from uh, from the state um, and even worse with this story this crisis is that according to Kat Kamat an American politician and political advisor pallets of baby formula are being sent to the border centers for illegal Im uh, migrants uh, she posted a photo on her Twitter of the shelves at the Ursula Process Center at the US border, packed with baby formula. And the second photo is what it's like where she lives, completely empty shelves. Um, President Joe Biden's, Biden's administration is struggling to respond, apparently according to the mail, and they are unable to reassure parents where, uh, when there will be more formula and where they can turn to for help. Uh, the administration is calling for a crackdown on price gouging 
as formula has been going up to $120 a can as desperate parents are trying to feed their children. That is a, an incredibly alarming story. And um, my heart goes out to all those parents. They must be absolutely uh, tearing their hair out and not knowing what to do. <clears throat> Uh, well, Patrick, thank you very much for that, Kitty Joe. But Patrick, is is uh, the baby formula problem in the states uh, typical of Biden? Uh, well, uh, who knows what's typical? Everything's typical of Biden now. But this is this is one of those crises that is is not doing him any favors going uh, into the midterms for his, his party or his administration. Um, so, and here's the problem here. Look at this. This is the biggest uh, producing uh, plant. Uh, I believe the Abbott plant in Michigan, Abbott Laboratories. Uh, this is the biggest one in the United States. The FDA shut it down. The FDA shut it down in February because of an, a, a suspected bacterial poisoning of two, I believe, two infant, infants, and they didn't reopen. They've been dragging their heels uh, to reopen it. So, if, if so, so hold on. Let me let me understand this. Uh, the FDA and other institutions in the United States have have. Uh, demanded the continuing vaccination of people and children in the United States, despite the, the adverse reactions. But two kids are uh, have adverse reactions to baby milk, and they shut down the factory and, and leave it shut down. Alleged reactions due to the formula from this plant. Now, if this produces a significant percentage of the country's uh, baby formula, Mike, um, shutting that down, your government has to know that shutting that down is going to create a major uh, crisis, okay? Not only that, you have the, the Pfizer documents coming out. There is also talk about uh, whether the spike proteins passed uh, through breastfeeding. And so that's going to put a chilling effect on some others thinking, well, if I've been triple vaxxed or double vaxxed with the mRNA vaccine, then you know maybe I should use baby formula just in case, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, again, so th this is a huge uh, screw up by the government um, and they should have known. and and. This is the type of thing, it's either gross incompetence um, or there's some other, who, who knows, some nefarious uh, agenda behind the scenes. But uh, we should also point out that who is the major, major investor here uh, in the bio uh, fake baby uh, formula? It's none other than, of course, Bill Gates, um, who I believe provided the uh, seed capital, I think, for that same uh, biomilk uh, company. Um, if not, he's, it's one of the other uh, firms vying for this. Yeah, BioMilk, right. uh, what Katie Joe had said before. So again, Bill Gates, uh, as if by magic, he's there uh, with the solution uh, in the background uh, waiting to be deployed. Yes. Okay, well, we're uh, pretty much out of time. So we'll, we'll leave it with, uh, with this uh, report from you, Katie Joe. Uh, and uh, well, we're, the headline here is uh, Florida Church. Uh, hold pride conference with drag show for higher for high schoolers it gets crazier doesn't it this uh, this takes place on the 21st of this month and the flyer apparently states the event is an exploration is an exploration of lgbtq related issues affecting today's youth and will feature a drag show this event is for 12 to 18 year olds the program for the conference includes a drag show from one of our local drag queens several presentations on mental health issues for gay and transgender individuals, a presentation on sexuality and science by the evolutionary biologist, a presentation on inclusive sex education by a representative from Planned Parenthood, none other than Planned Parenthood, and a presentation on political activism and advocacy. However, Florida are fighting hard 
Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Florida has introduced a new legislation, the HB 1557 bill, which was signed into last month, um, into the law last month. It prohibits public school teachers from discussing the existence of LGBTQ people in any capacity from kindergarten to third grade. Uh, so Florida are, are on this and the press secretary for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis shared a report on Twitter by the news outlet Florida's Voice that indicated the organisers planned to use parking lots at local schools for free shuttle transportation to the conference. The district shot the plan down. The district was never informed nor con contacted about this event, the district said. Uh, Collier County Public Schools is not a sponsor of the event which is being held at a private facility. CCPS also neither authorised nor approved the transportation of CCPS students to and from district school sites by the event organisers. Any interference, um, sorry, any inference uh, to the contrary is fully rejected by CCPS. To this end, CCPS has spoken with the event organiser and explained that the information on the registration form and any associated flyer must be immediately corrected to reflect that CCPS is not a co-sponsor, nor will it allow its school sites to be used as transit points for the pickup and drop-off of students for this event, the district added. Unfortunately, not all schools are like CCPS. Three boys, three schoolboys, are being taken to court in the US state of Wisconsin after refusing to call their peers by their preferred pronouns. I know. The students from Keele Middle School have been charged under the sexual harassment legislation, which deals with serious crimes such as rape, dating violence, quid pro quo, sexual favours and other sexual violent crime. Um, Rosemary Rabidio, one of the boys' mothers, in an interview tells us how she went into shock when her son's school called her to make her aware of the investigation. She says, I immediately went into shock. I'm thinking sexual harassment, that's rape, that's inappropriate touching, that's incest. What has my son done? Well, he's done none of those things, poor woman. She says the investigating principal said he's been allegedly charged with sexual, sexual harassment for not using proper pronouns. I thought it wasn't real. I thought this has got to be a gag, a joke. One has nothing to do with the other. The Wisconsin Institution for Law and Liberty is defending the accused boys, thankfully, and refutes claims that uh, misuse of pronouns is not covered by Title IX, the legislation that protects people from discrimination based on sex in the education system. In an online statement, WILL Deputy Counsel Luke Berg said school administrators can't force minor students to comply with their preferred mode of speaking. And they certainly shouldn't be slapping eighth graders with the title IX investigations for what amount to protected speech. This is a terrible precedent to set with enormous ramifications. Absolutely, I agree with you there, Luke Berg. Thank you for speaking sense. Um, I did send in a clip of the of the mum being interviewed. Uh, yeah, look, yes. Look, I, I think we'll keep. If you don't mind, Kitty Joe, we'll keep the clip for for extra because uh, it, we we sure. are out of time. Um, so why don't we why don't we just move on to this uh, final uh, slide here, which is uh, bullied to death, Drake Hardman, uh, age twelve. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I just wanted to compare that to what actually really happens. So bullying in school is absolutely horrific. This isn't even a case of bullying. Um, you know, I read the most horrific and heartbreaking, tragic story last week um, of a little boy, Drake Hardman, who was only 12 when he hung himself with his favorite hoodie because the bullying he was enduring was so unbearable. Um, he came home days before the suicide um, with a black eye and initially lied about how he'd got it. And then he later confided to his sister that, and he told her that snitches get to stitches. Um, his poor parents had tried to step in by contacting the school, um, which, you know, they just suspended the alleged bully. Um, and, and that's it. And, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because would it have been different if, if he was being bullied for being trans? Would he have had more support? Would they have taken harsher, you know, actions on, on the bullies? I have, a, I have a feeling the answer is yes. And I'm absolutely sick to death of seeing the systems and the institutions that are meant to be protecting our children, letting them down. More than that, failing them. Failing them completely in every single way. Okay, thank you for that. David, any comments? No, it's just uh, thank you, for, uh, Katie, for, for bringing these things up. The, the, the war for right thinking and, uh, and well-doing goes on uh, against uh, many who are uh, treating our children in particular um, as um, means of, of achieving the political and, and cultural ends, a lot of which come from very dark motivations indeed. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, well, we're, we are at the time. So let's just uh, end with a couple of uh, final slides. Uh, first of all, David, uh, Grandpa, what was uh, what was it like li living through the collapse of the Western world is the text that goes with this. And, and Grandpa illustrates it with three Calvin Klein adverts from 1999, uh, a very athletic uh, and attractive woman um, in a very small uh, bathing costume. From 2019, a morbidly obese woman um, in, in a much larger set of Cal Calvin Klein underwear. And from 2022, uh, a man, a woman who thinks she's a man but is pregnant uh, with his, her partner who is a man that thinks he's a woman. And I'm a bit confused already. That's uh, a quick summary of the decline of Western civilization. Uh, yes. And uh, uh, well, the Babylon Bee here, was this one of yours, Patrick? Oh, yeah. Well, this is uh, the baby formula thing. Starving American babies disguise themselves as Ukrainian soldiers in hopes of getting some of the $40 billion in federal aid. There he is there, one of Zelensky's uh, uh, regiment there, hoping to get his hands on some baby formula. Okay, well, we got to leave it there. Thank you, Patrick, for joining us today. Thank you to David and to Katie Joe. We'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream uh, with some extra. Um, but otherwise, we'll see you at 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday uh, and uh, hope to see you then. Bye-bye.